You're listening to a Rock Candy podcast. I'm Avery Smith, and I'm here to invite you to Blessed Are the Binary Breakers, a multi-faith podcast of transgender stories. Whatever your own relationship to gender and spirituality may be, you will find yourself enriched by the stories shared by my guests, who so far have ranged in religion from Christian and pagan to Jewish, Sikh, atheist, and beyond, and have hailed from the U.S., Chile, Poland, Australia, and more. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts, or read along with episode transcripts by visiting blessedarethebinarybreakers.com. See you there. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and we are here on the Rock Candy Podcast Network. For more shows like this one, go to rockcandyrecordings.com. All right. As always, I have to thank my patrons. I have an absolutely crippling addiction to oversharing on the internet. And I need you to help fund this crippling addiction. So in order to do that, go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. And for a dollar, three dollars, five dollars a month, you get extra content every single week, including my House of Heretics podcast with the former Salvation Army officer turned Christian heretic Timothy McPherson, and we discuss faith, religion, Satanism, philosophy, current events uh, from our dissonant lens, my dissonant perspectives, my perspective as a Satanist, his perspective as a progressive Christian. And patrons listen in live and contribute to the conversation too. So every Wednesday morning, it is always a fun time. This show is a one-man operation. I do all of the recording, all of the writing, all of the booking, all of the editing, all of the production. And it is a part-time job in addition to working for the temple and doing my day job. So every little bit really does help. And I believe in bringing these conversations to you for free I believe that the world needs interesting, long-form conversations. But in order to do that, I need your help. So for this week, I have to thank Patricia Moreno, Scott Armstrong, and Anna. Thank you so much. Well, with all of that out of the way, I'm delighted to welcome Tony Wolf to the show. Hello, Tony. Welcome. Hello, Stephen, and thank you. So, Tell us some about who you are and what you do. We uh, connected via email. You you sent me an email linking to a really lovely article that you wrote, and we started talking. We started going back and forth about the topic of uh, what you call poetic faith. But before we get into that, tell us some about who you are and what you do. Sure. I have a peculiar accent, which you may already have noticed. Um, That's because I was born and raised in New Zealand. I've been living in Chicago in the U.S. for the past 16, 17 years. Land of the Hobbits. Do you get it? Is is that like somehow racist against New Zealanders to say land Not of the in Hobbits? The okay, no, wonderful. No, no. <laughs> I like. Do you get? Does it annoy you that um, that people bring up hobbits all the time in relation to New Zealand? Well, as a matter of fact, I worked on the Lord of the Rings movies. Oh, my God. Okay, so we're, from, we're just going to talk about that for the rest of the movie, <laughs> for the rest of the show. Yeah. <laughs> we, are, uh, so, we are ditching the, the rest, all of the topics that we had planned. We're talking about Lord of the Rings now. Yeah, see, I always hesitate before I bring that up in this sort of context. But um, So, no, I, there's, it's certainly not an insult. It isn't racist. Neither, incidentally, is being called a Kiwi. Um, oh, good. Okay. New Zealanders refer, refer so to each I, other as I Kiwi. can call you a hobbit or a kiwi. You can call me a hobbit kiwi if you feel like it. <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, but um, I, uh, I very tactlessly completely interrupted your introduction of yourself within like the first sentence. So do please continue. <laughs> I'm so well, sorry. Oh, it's fine. That, that was where I was born and raised anyway. And New Zealand is a, is a very atheistic sort of the country. Um, I believe one of the most atheistic or non-theistic countries in the world. And um, I was born in the late 
60s, grew up in the 70s and 80s, and really never received any sort of religious education at all. Um, no Sunday school, no um, indoctrination of any kind, but I um, developed a really strong kind of intellectual interest in the variety of belief, particularly sort of fringe beliefs, as a young teenager. And I spent some time in my teens and early 20s um, just trying to investigate that as well as I could you know, prior, a long time prior to the internet. Um, I would visit various fringe groups and do a lot of um, research in the libraries, um, buying secondhand books and so on. I was just fascinated by the phenomenon of belief. I wanted to figure out why people who believe particularly in the supernatural, um, why they thought that way. And so I was going along to these groups, not in the sense of, of trying to find a belief for myself, but more as a sort of undercover anthropologist. I, I wanted to get to know the people and, and figure out what they were about. And as a result of that interest, came across the notion of creative spirituality which is something that I think I first came across that in Margot Adler's book, Drawing Down the Moon, which is a very readable and, and very fascinating for me study of the American neo-pagan scene during the 70s. And I was very impressed by that, partly because these people did not seem necessarily to be true believers. They seemed to be operating in a, in a kind of a, a third way space, somewhere between the sort of skepticism that is satisfied with, with simply saying no to everything. And the type of true belief in which one, one would profess a, a genuine belief in gods and magic and, and those sorts of things. The pagans seem to have found a third way. And so I got involved in that scene for a while and in my early 20s now. And unfortunately, at about that time, I lost two very close friends, um, one to suicide and the other to a, a tragic motorcycle accident. I attended the funerals and I, I wrote the, one of them. I wrote an obituary for one of them. Um, I helped his family clear out his apartment, but I was left unmoved, particularly by the funeral. He was um, Greek Orthodox, and so I, I attended the event, and I didn't understand the, the symbolism. I didn't understand, the, apart from anything else, the, the priest was speaking largely in Greek. I was just unmoved, and that left me sort of unsatisfied in the wake of these tragedies. And so because of my interest in this, this idea of creative spirituality, the, the idea that you could create your own soulful practice, I guess, as a work of art in the same way that you might write a poem or, or compose a, a piece of music or write a story, I devised my own memorial ritual for him and um, found that that was profoundly effective. That actually gave me a sense of, of closure. And... I found, in fact, in the decades, this was 30-something years ago now, but I found that in the decades following, looking back at that, I'm so profoundly glad that I did it because now it gives, it gives me a, a positive memory, in a sense, to go along with the, the tragedy of his, his violent and very sudden and very untimely death. He was only 25. And ever since then, I've paid really close attention to this phenomenon of what I think of as poetic faith. We'll get into that, I guess, later on. And particularly towards innovations in kind of artistic memorial and memento mori ritual. That has, it's been a sustaining interest for 30-something years. After my father died in 2016, I began to pay much more attention to what was going on in, in that sphere with regards to the death positivity movement, the death cafe, seeing those sorts of things. And then the pandemic rolled around, of course, in 2020 at a very um, sort of a heightened point in my life as well. And it occurred to me then that if I was never going to take this public, because it had always just been my practice, my sort of individual underground thing that I did. But it just seemed like so many people were dying. And during the early stages of the pandemic, we had no idea how contagious the virus might be. This could virtually have been the end of the world for all we knew. And it just seemed to me like this would be a, a very worthy thing to focus much of my attention on. And that's, that's kind of what I've been doing since then. Mm, so you've been focusing on creating cathartic and meaningful rituals in a time of, you know, death and destruction and uncertainty for a lot of people, for people who might not have a faith in the supernatural. Am I hearing that right? It is, yeah. 
I think that if one has faith in the supernatural, one can still probably get a good deal out of the sorts of things that I, I've created over the years. But um, mm. it's particularly for secularists, for atheists, for people who with the best will in the world um, may find themselves rather floundering in these very extreme emotional circumstances. They may find that um, that reason and logic will only take them so far. They may find that they need the, the catharsis, as you say, of a symbolic ritual. Um, and the rituals can be performed without any, without any literal belief in the supernatural at all. Do you think that there is a drive within humanity for for symbolism and ritual and enchantment to to enter into what Joseph Laycock calls a paracosm, which is kind of a shared imaginative world. Do you, I I some I go back and forth on this because I personally feel a very deep religious need. I experience this deep um deep religious need that that is, is that Jesus does not go away. I've always been a deeply religious person. I've never not been religious. I don't know if that extends to everyone, though. I don't know if that is a universal feature, and I'm not comfortable saying that it is, but but what do you think? Do you think that that there is a kind of an innate need for religious expression or symbolism? I think that there is for very many people, certainly. Mm. I've gone through years of my life where I didn't feel any need to perform ritual or to really focus on uh, spirituality. I think of it as soulfulness. Um, sometimes I think because I was simply getting enough of that in my daily life, um, sometimes because I was busy doing other things. But I think it's um, very valuable to have that faculty available for the times when you do need it. I think that many people inherently probably do need it anyway. Mm. Um, and I think that a, a really quite a small number of people have an almost visceral reaction against that idea. I think possibly particularly people who are sort of in recovery from hmm. the orthodox mainstream religions. Uh, there's a, a great deal of resistance, I know, in the skeptical community and some of the, um, the atheistic communities to um, anything that even sort of smacks of religion. And um, they can be kind of hard sells when I'm trying to explain this, this notion of poetic faith, because I think to them, it, it's basically a painful reminder of, of a situation they'd rather, they'd rather never have been involved with. Do you think that there are some people who are just wired differently? And, and I don't mean that in a negative sense at all, that there are just people who, for, for whom religion does not, and religion and ritual just does not move the needle at all. You know, like maybe someone like Richard Dawkins, who is just, you know, I don't know, just fucking born <laughs> like that, which is great. It's fine. You know, we all know like those stone cold atheists and and they're wonderful. This isn't a diss on them at all. But I I look at how they express themselves and what they talk about. And then I look at my own life and there's there's a fundamental difference there and i sometimes wonder if it's if it's like almost neurological if it's a different type of personality or type of wiring you know i think it could well be i know you know the extremes in that direction there, i mean there was if you look back into the history of humanism there's always been an assumption dating right, right back to the time of the enlightenment that insofar as humans, the mass of humans might become capable of, of life without faith in the supernatural, that the gap that would be left, and it's acknowledged that that would be a, a massive gap for, for gigantic numbers of people, that it would be filled by the wonders of, for example, democratized art and mm -hmm. literature and the wonders of nature. And I think that that does hold true, but for quite a small number of people. Hmm. I think that the majority, I mean, clearly the majority of humans, um, I don't know if they need it, but they definitely want to have some, some form of transcendent symbology and, and ritual in their lives. Yeah, yeah. I, have you seen, this is a bit of a tangent, um, but have you seen, are you familiar with the YouTuber ContraPoints? I'm sorry, with who? Uh, ContraPoints. 
she's a she's a trans youtuber and she's really brilliant but i'm going to recommend that all of my listeners go watch her latest genius video it's about an hour long so it's definitely an investment but it's a it's it's a Oh God! How do I even do? I do I want to go down the route of 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 explaining this impossible video? I guess I'll go for it, and if I have to cut this out, then that's fine. But in this video, she dramatizes a conversation between a fundamentalist Christian and a secular activist, a, a secular progressive activist, and it's it's brilliant because it is obvious that the fundamentalist Christian is wrong and that her worldview is fundamentally destructive, but that there is a fundamental need being met in her, in her life, in her worldview, by her religious existence that is not being met in the activist's life, in the progressive activist's life. And then as the movie unfolds, as the movie, I mean, it is practically a movie. And then as the mo- as the video unfolds, the video follows the, the, um, the activist um, that ContraPoints is playing. And I think her name is Justine Tableau in uh, this video and how she is so riddled with guilt and shame and she's ostracized by her own community, all of which has happened to, to contrapoints herself within the trans community. And she turns to opioids. She turns to really heavy drug addiction. And so within this video is the tension between what I think is a very honest portrayal that I think contrapoints probably is wrestling with and grappling with is on the one hand a religion that fulfills a need a personal need but is fundamentally destructive to society versus a secularism that might be true but feels utterly empty and and she and the video is just left with in like on this note of despair on this note of desperation and despair just not knowing how to resolve that and i think that that's the dilemma that maybe not most people find themselves in but it's the dilemma that i found myself in i felt like i was stuck between cold rationality or irrational religion and i needed both <laughs> And I could, and I didn't know how to find it. And it was only until the Satanic Temple came along that I felt like I discovered. I it, it was like discovering something revolutionary for me. I felt like I had discovered a new continent or something. It was a, of this this realization of I can have enchantment, I can have religion, and I can have rationality too. Yeah, and I don't have to believe in God in order to be to satisfy this deep religious need. Um, so, yeah, if you get a chance, definitely watch that video by ContraPoints because it is very powerful. I'll send it to you after the show. Also, I'll put it in the show notes for everyone else to watch it as well. Thank you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, yeah, what you've just described is exactly what I think of as poetic faith. And the Satanic Temple is a superb example of that. Um, I'm actually about halfway through writing a book on this subject, so my answers, my answers and comments may be a little scattered. Sure, um, but I would see the Satanic Temple as obviously the the um, most popular and largest manifestation of this this idea, um, this phenomenology, which I've been trying to trace back, really to the to the time of the ancient Greeks, but particularly back over the past couple of hundred years, and you can see um, a kind of an evolution of this concept from from pure ideation through to the first sort of tentative steps towards actualization. And then during the period of the 1960s and 70s via the counterculture movement, suddenly an entire generation felt as if it had permission to play with these ideas. So all of a sudden you get the Church of Satan and, and all of the um, neo-pagan groups, they all sort of exploded on the, into the, the counterculture scene at that time. But now we're at least one generation after that. And which is one of the one of the reasons why I find the Satanic Temple so interesting, um, is that the idea that the practice is now matured, and so with TST, you have an institution that basically takes as read the scientific worldview, 
and then says, okay, now what? Which is this thing that I think with the best will in the world, humanism has never really achieved. Hmm. Um, and I find it very exciting. I agree with that. There is a quote from um, in uh, Ruben Van Luich's, uh actually it's pronounced Ruben Van Lack. I just found that out, but it looks like Luich. He wrote the book Children of Lucifer, but one of the opening quotes of his book here, let me let me find this. Oh, Kindle's signed out. Never mind. I won't find it. My technology is conspiring against me. But the quote was something like, the religion of the future will be the atheism of today. Mm. Or or will be the the seeds planted by atheism today. Or something like that. Something something of that nature. And which I think I think that there's something inevitable about religion in that, you know, the the four horsemen of the apocalypse can come along and they can kind of break down the doors of of fundamentalist religion in the United States and and kind of usher in this sec, try to usher in this secularization and and it's almost like even secularization and the scientific method and rationality will become a given and then will be folded into the future iterations of religion, whatever that is, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And, and I think that's, yep. that's in a way, that's the opportunity that some of the major humanist groups, the um, certainly groups like the Satanic Temple, uh, the Spiritual Naturalist Society, the Religious Naturalist Association, you can see these, these um, various approaches popping up in odd corners of academia and in the work of certain fringe artists, basically bubbling up in, in, in from the counterculture and from various subcultures. And this, it's quite a recent thing. Um, it's, we could date it back, I guess, again to the 60s and 70s, but there's, there's definitely a resurgence of that sort of thing over about the past 10 years. And I think it's partly a reaction against the increasing sort of monotheism, in a sense, of the dominant culture, of, of the mainstream culture which is becoming ever more increasingly corporate and slick and, um, and boring, frankly. Mm -hmm. And you're starting to see these, um, these, these bubbling pockets of, of fringe thought in a variety of spheres. I'm personally, I'm interested to see what's going to happen when all of those people start discovering each other and start sharing ideas. I don't think that's really, that's really happening yet, mm. but I'm hoping to have a hand in, in helping it too. So, Give a, a succinct definition of poetic faith. What do you mean when you say poetic faith? Well, it's the same thing that J.R.R. Tolkien referred to, or very nearly the same thing that Tolkien referred to, when he would write about um, mythopoeia, which means myth-making. Hmm. Uh, Tolkien was a devout Christian, but obviously also the author of The Lord of the Rings. Um, and he took mythology and this this um, creative practice of myth-making very seriously. He actually coined that phrase, I think, during a, a sort of a, a poetic argument with C.S. Lewis, who was the author of the, uh, the Narnia stories. Lewis at that time had professed a sort of a, um, a disinterest or a, a disrespect for mythology because Lewis was also a Christian. And Tolkien wrote this extraordinary poem in which he, um, he kind of challenged Lewis's point. And his, um, his idea of myth-making was that, in a way, mythology could reveal truths that were truer than reality. Mm. Um, and also there was the, there's the notion of, um, this is not succinct. I've just realized. No, 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 that's, no this a, is great. Keep going. You know, no, this is fabulous. Succinct, <laughs> um, but I think that that's, that's what he was writing about. The thing is, as a devout Christian, he referred to this um, mythopoeia, this um, um, creation of mythology, as, as a sub-creation, because he was not able to conceive of, of, a, a, of a human creation that could equal that of, of a supernatural god. But once you get, again, to the period of the 60s and 70s, you have a generation of, of young adults who have grown up reading The Lord of the Rings, just for example. And I think that when those, that generation of kids got into college, they started to look around and think, well, you know what, the 60s are happening. And you know what, these books, The Lord of the Rings, this, this mythology, 
means much more to me personally and, and stirs my imagination and gets my, my sense of soulfulness revving in a way that the church that I went to when I was a kid just never did. And that generation felt a freedom, perhaps for the first time, yeah, for the first time in history. There had been outliers mm. going way back for several hundred years, but this was the first time it happened on a generational scale, that there was the sense of permission given um, to experiment with that and to play not only with the idea of it, but with the practice. So the, that was not succinct at all, but I think that poetic faith, as I use it, is very much akin to what he referred to as as mythopoeia, as, as myth-making. Um, the difference is that now, because I, I use the term poetic faith in a way that's distinct from um, the way that Coleridge did. I should talk a bit about um, Samuel Coleridge, who actually coined the phrase. Um, the, Coleridge the phrase in, uh, poetic faith, you mean? Yeah. Okay, yeah. got it. Yeah, and Coleridge, way back in the early, early 1800s, um, he was a poet, very famous English poet, and he wrote of... Um, conjuring the suspension of disbelief that can conjure um, for a moment this, this sense of poetic faith in something that isn't real, but which um, can still impact one deeply, profoundly, emotionally, imaginatively, intellectually. You know that it isn't real, but you're able to enter into the spirit. I think that's another good definition. It's the ability to imaginatively and emotionally enter into the spirit of a work of fiction with the intellectual understanding that it's fiction, but still allow that to, to make massive epochal changes, um, hopefully for the good, in one's life, in one's personality, in one's worldview. Mm. So I'm, I'm drawing all kinds of parallels here because Anton LaVey would talk about objectively entering into a subjective space. Mm which I think is a, a good way to put that. And he also talked about confining the, confining the ritual to the ritual chamber, and, and which, which means kind of entering the ritual chamber, entering the magic chamber, and, and understanding that, that you're entering a fantasy, but it's real simultaneously, and it is psychologically real. It is powerful. You experience it, and then you can exit that space and and go into the mundane return to the mundane and you know i've you know as 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 crazy and shitty as uh, anton levey was a lot of the time he had a few good insights and i think that was one of the oh. good insights but also i've been thinking about this in so the other day i was on a walk with a friend and we were we were talking about about this subject and the subject of kind of inventing religion in inventing religion and um basically the conversation was you know i don't believe in god but i feel this need and but i feel like a lack of belief will make the thing less powerful will make the thing less real and i was like i don't think that's true belief or lack of belief does not lessen the power of the religious and ritual experience and that's so counterintuitive for so many people. And so I, uh, one, I think one of the big hurdles that a lot of people have for what you describe as poetic faith or, you know, non-theistic ritual. And this is one of the hurdles that I that I think a lot of people th that I've seen a lot of people go through when they approach ritual within Satanism is, well, if I don't believe it, then what's the point? If I don't believe it, then then what's the purpose? What good does this do? And I get this from both sides of the faith spectrum. I do too. I get this from atheists who say, "Well, what's the point of, do of what's the point of having a pagan or magic ritual? What's the point of doing chaos magic, which I'm a huge personal fan of? What's the point of doing chaos magic? Or what's th what's the point of?" of having an altar. My altar is currently covered in books right now, as you can see. But what's the point of having an altar that you ritualize? What's the point of having a sacred space or any of that stuff? What's the point of it? If you don't believe it's real, 
What's the fucking point? And then I get the exact same thing from people of supernatural faith, people who literally believe in God, and they say, well, you know, if Christ is just a symbol, if he's just an archetype and he didn't actually raise from the dead, you know, die and then raise again on the third day, then what's the whole fucking, what's the fucking point of the Mass? What's the point of this ritual? How do you, how do you get past that hurdle? Well, I explain it in terms, again, of suspension of disbelief. So it's not belief. It isn't rock-ribbed unbelief, or it isn't, again, the kind of unbelief that is simply satisfied with saying no to everything. Um, I would explain it in in positive terms of re-enchantment, not in a literal magic sense, magic with a CK, um, but in terms of, again, the ability to enter imaginatively and emotionally into the spirit of basically a narrative. And I'm using narrative in a very broad sense. A narrative could be um, could be invested, for example, in a symbol. TST invests a great deal of, of narrative power into the literary symbol of Satan. Yes. Without, without obviously believing in a literal entity, a supernatural entity called Satan. But the point there is that the the symbol genuinely does mean a great deal. Lucian Greaves keeps referring to our deeply held um, beliefs yes. because they are. Because if you're using Satan to represent ideas like bodily autonomy and um, rebellion against unjust tyranny, then hell yeah, people believe in that, and so they should. I sometimes use the the parallel of of people going to visit things like the Statue of Liberty. No one literally believes that Lady Liberty is is a, a huge goddess of freedom. But damn sure people go there and they feel something. They can feel something very profound and moving because they understand that this is a personification. This is a a, a literary, in a sense, a, a symbolic construct. Mm. But the thing means something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the only... So, so I have the... I have my previous life as a Christian to kind of compare my my life as a Satanist to. And what's so interesting to me is I did literally believe in Jesus. I did literally believe in God and the Trinity. I do not literally believe in Satan, but the experience of of the experience of Jesus and the experience of Satan are so close to each other religiously speaking they are for as a matter of experience it's almost like say the 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 literary symbol of satan imbues my every day i mean i am a satanist every single day i live and breathe the tenets i am it, it's just become part of the fabric of my life it's like closer than my skin and that symbol and that life and the and, and the imaginative power and enchantment of the symbol of Satan is just there with me every single day. I could say the exact same thing about the person of Christ, but I literally believed in Christ. <laughs> but and, and I guess that for me, that demonstrates that belief is not the important ingredient that we hear in America and kind of Protestant-centric America might think it is, right? It, we it might be it might not be the essential ingredient for having profound religious experience and 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 a profound a profound sense of enchantment. Yeah, no, I don't think that it is. And I think that the experience of, of other cultures um, places outside the US and other cultures through history tend to bear that out. I mean, there are plenty of religions in the world that don't actually require a literal belief in in deities, for example, but they do tend to, as it were, require a certain shared, set, excuse me, a certain set of shared values, and very frequently they will at least strongly encourage a, a set of shared behaviours um, through ritual. I think that the um, th- there's an interesting case study. Um, Sir Francis Galton, English scientist. Um, again, early 19th century, early mid-19th century. He was very interested in, and I'm using the language that he used, the language of the mid-19th century, but he was interested in the primitive beliefs of primitive tribes people. Mm-hmm. And he tried an experiment on himself, a psychological experiment, 
whereby he hung up a poster of a character, a cartoon character called Mr. Punch. Some of your readers, you know, so your listeners may be aware of Mr. Punch, sort of a grotesque um, puppet as an ads and Punch and Judy show. And at that time, Mr. Punch was used as the mascot for a famous humor magazine. Anyway, Galton got this idea in his head and he hung up a picture of Mr. Punch on his wall. And for 10 minutes or something every morning, he would focus all of the force of his will and his imagination and his, his sentiment on this image, um, trying to conjure the sort of religious awe that he, that he was searching for. And he found after a period of several weeks that it was starting to work. Yes. And it worked to the point that it actually frightened him. Yes. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, that's a fascinating experiment for that man at that time. But I think it, it um, concretely demonstrates the sort of phenomenon that we're talking about. There was no sense in which Sir Francis Galton literally believed that Mr. Punch was a god because he's basically a ridiculous, grotesque puppet. Yeah. But under the circumstances that he willingly entered, in the, in the spirit of suspension of disbelief, he entered the state of poetic faith and it profoundly moved him. And again, it, it's not a complicated thing really because we all learn to, to enter the state of poetic faith as young children. We learn to read, we learn, we're watching television or whatever. We learn to enter into the spirit of whatever the narrative is and we can be positively changed. We can be profoundly changed by it. Hmm. Many people will remember favorite books from childhood that they will say when they look back, this has really had a profound impact on my life, on the way I see the world, on the way I treat other people. That's the, that's the phenomenon that I'm talking about. And I think to go back to your earlier question, that's one of the ways I would explain it, um, both to rationalists and to true believers. To, and to rationalists, you can explain it easily, simply in psychological terms. The placebo effect is a real thing. Absolutely. And one thing that I've been thinking about quite a bit lately, and I've been thinking about this because I've been getting back into the game Magic the Gathering, um, which I was into in college. And I have a friend who is who, who plays it. And so I've started playing it again with him. And for people who don't know, you know, Magic the Gathering, it's a card game, but it takes place in like this vast, this, this vast fantasy multiverse. And you are a player in the game. You are a character in this universe. And there are mythologies and worlds and characters and classes and just, and it's huge. And, and it's the same experience with Dungeons and Dragons when you play Dungeons and Dragons. And there is a very real sense of entering into an enchanted space when you play a game like Magic the Gathering or Dungeons and Dragons and that sense, that feel of you're, you're engaged in this with another person or group of people and you are in this shared imaginative space and even though it's imaginative, that doesn't make it less impactful mm -hmm. because then you, you walk away from that experience, you re-enter the mundane world um, you know, I go go home from from the game night and I go to bed and then I go to work the next day. But I carry within me this sense of having actually had a real experience that that changed me in some really meaningful way. There was a shared enchantment that has left an imprint on me that that experience of of gaming and i don't say and i you know joseph laycock who i bring up all the time he wrote um uh speak of the devil which is the book about tst but early on he many years ago he wrote a book called dangerous games which is a, i'm looking at it right now oh you're okay perfect have you yeah, read in it in fact i first came across that book in the satanic temple library yeah it's it's Very a fantastic cool. book but one of the things he talks about is the importance of play and play is not a derogatory thing at all. You know, he doesn't use the term play in a demeaning sense. Play is this incredibly profound and human experience that involves yeah. engagement and role playing and, and entering an enchanted space together. And I wonder if, if play and religion and ritual are kind of cut from the same cloth. Yes, I think that they are. I think they are um, far closer than specialists in any one of those areas would normally 
consider. Mm-hmm. The uh, a parallel I was talking before about these um, non-theistic religions um, approaches to poetic faith that are bubbling up at the moment. In parallel with that, there are psychologists doing serious work on what what they sometimes call deep play, which is I think the experience that you're talking about. It's just it's just kind of a matter of of recontextualizing, reframing. We think of play as something that is trivial because it's done by children. Well, not necessarily. Um, when adults play, they'll play what? Sex games, they'll play football. These are because these are the, the things that most people do. They're the mainstream. But you look again into, into the counterculture, into subcultures. You start to find all sorts of interesting manifestations of play. A lot of the, the even today, the major neo-pagan religions began effectively as jokes. Yes. Or, or as games. Yes. And then what happened consistently pretty much across the board was people were just, and again, mostly young people, mostly university students in the late 60s, early 70s. They were playing with these ideas and then uh, they'd go out into the world and maybe maybe hold some sort of a, a ritual, um, a, uh, a ritual in honor of Dionysus or Odin or, or Demeter or whatever. And they would find that it's not only fun, but it actually works. And so then they, yes. they start to take it a little more seriously and they go out again. And gradually, because these groups tend to be, they're not necessarily, but they do often tend to be fairly short-lived. But gradually over time, because there were so many of them and they started to communicate back and forth, writing occasional conferences as you get into the 1980s and 90s, it develops into its own countercultural scene. It develops its own, in a sense, ritual technologies. And again, that's a reason why I find TST so interesting now is that you guys have the the benefit of that where are we fifty year, fifty five year tradition. Yeah. Whether it's whether it's conscious or not, but it's something that you can call upon, and it's now established. You don't necessarily have to invent it all yourselves. You can certainly innovate, but but the concept has now been seeded. Yeah, absolutely. The concept of, of, of this deep play of, of um, suspending disbelief. I was having a conversation with Shalise Blythe, who's, um, I just did a show with her, but yeah. but I was talking, I forget when this was, this was, I think it was on the show, I, I can't remember, but she was talking about how within Satanism, we need to have a really deep respect and appreciation for a lot of the occultists who came before us because they were the ones who laid the groundwork and we can look into the works of you know the chaos magicians and the neo-pagans and and people like Aleister Crowley and the theosophists and and it's complicated there is a lot of supernatural belief there but it's also a bit more nuanced than that it's oh yeah it and you know we we shouldn't just kind of sneer at it and and say, oh, you know, those look at those, you know, lunatics who were, you know, and you know, with their silly hats and whatever. But instead, we that's our foundation within Satanism. We come from the same intellectual stream that Wiccans come from, that neo pagans come from. We come from that same kind of Western esoteric tradition, and we need to know that and appreciate that <laughs> and so i'm yeah. totally vibing with everything that you are saying right now um well well good it's it's mutual um and yeah and i think it's worth pointing out i referred earlier to drawing down the moon marco adler's book mm. um and there are substantial sections in there where she's interviewing pagans who say no i don't literally believe in gods and magic this is psychological archetype these are symbolic representations of, of the great powers of nature or of hidden potentialities within within myself, within people in my community, mm. and that idea was was basically being taken as read as early as the late sixties. Mm. Um, I think that it became in in that sphere. I think it became kind of déclassé to overtly talk about that stuff, particularly during the nineteen eighties and nineties. And I haven't done any sort of a study of this, but my guess is that. As that sphere, as the as the neo pagan sphere, grew closer to the new age mainstream, insofar as the new age could be considered mainstream, um, it developed a kind of an orthodoxy, and a big part of the orthodoxy was basically you don't mention that you are in fact an atheist and a skeptic who is who's getting a lot out of this activity, who don't who doesn't <laughs> genuinely and literally believe in gods and ghosts and magic. Yes, it's, it's in a sense it became rude to 
profess that. I think that was a bit of a shame because they were the people in the, you know, the, the some of the founders were really onto something. That perspective, though, is now coming back into the fore. You have um, books like Godless Paganism, which I contributed to under a pseudonym. Big, thick book of an anthology of all manner of, of people who are overtly practicing paganism um, without any literal belief in God's magic. A lot of them are scientists, a lot of them are artists, a lot of them hmm. are both. Um, Atheopaganism has, has become a major stream in, in that regard. I feel like so much of the atheist world and um, the American mainline religious world are just totally unprepared to <laughs> to engage with that. And so I like how do you so you're also a columnist at Only Sky, which is a, a um or a blogger at Only Sky. I'm a feature writer technically. Yeah. You're a feature writer. Perfect. So you're a feature writer at Only Sky, which is kind of a a secular humanist atheist uh, website. So, how do fellow non-theists and atheists respond to you when you say this kind of stuff? Like, what happens? Because I yeah. I can tell you what happens to me when I say this kind of stuff. But what happens to you? That's probably the same sort of thing. Honestly, I'm not that. Uh, f- uh, to begin, I've only just recently started writing for Only Sky. Mm. I have a contract with them and stuff, but it's um it's it's fairly early days there. My intuition is that the other writers would be open to the um to the notion of it, but it would require a careful explanation, and you may well have to repeat certain points several times. And it's it's not that they're not that they couldn't apprehend the concept intellectually. It's that it is very very it's, it's from far out out of their field. Mm-hmm. This third way perspective. A lot of people, and I'm not just talking about on this guy now, but a lot of skeptics and atheists are very much involved in this binary: you are this or you are that. Yeah. Um, perspective. Really, a, a lot of American culture is is um, is extremely binary to the extent that sometimes I worry that the country is driving itself crazy. There's, there's one advantage of the polytheistic perspective. I'm, I'm not speaking about again literal belief in gods, but um, a sort of polytheistic psychology. I think James Hillman wrote about that. Um, a polytheist is much better able, I suspect, to roll with the punches because they're accustomed to thinking in multiple terms rather than in terms of, of a clashing binary. In duality. Yeah, yeah. They're in, yeah. It's thinking in, in a non-binary sense. No, and with, uh, do you know the cartoonist, The Naked Pastor? Um, I'm going to say the name again. The Naked Pastor. No. I interviewed him years ago uh, on this show. He was great, but he's a cartoonist. He's like a progressive. He is a, he is a Christian minister, but he was asked, or the cartoon is of someone being asked, so are you, do you believe in God or are you an atheist? And the person, the other person in the cartoon responds, I'm non-binary. And, <laughs> and I fucking love that because in a lot of ways, I, I think that non-theism is for me personally the way i would describe non-theism as uh the same way that mike mcarg who's an author he wrote finding god in the waves and he kind of approaches christianity from a non-theistic mindset but he says non-theism is taking an, an eraser to the line that divides atheism and theism and it is mm-hmm. and it is erasing that boundary so you can still have and so in that spirit i wrote an article several years ago called on not believing in god but experiencing him anyway mm. and and that's the kind of non-duality that i'm interested in and so i'm i'm interested in this experience of Knowing that the enchanted space is not literally real, but that doesn't make it any less any less experientially real for me. Precisely, yeah. I remember you're in Asheville, right, Stephen? That's right. Yeah, yeah. And I, I had a, a a moment of insight. My wife and I vacationed in Asheville. It was an anniversary vacation, probably about five years ago now. And I loved it. It was very much my kind of town. Oh, yeah. It has you you, you would fit right in here. <laughs> I think so. 
But yeah, basically it's full of hills and curves and Chicago is as flat as a board and everything's set out on a grid. So I like the hills and curves. But we did all of the things that I've been doing back in the 80s and 90s, um, drum circles and we mm-hmm. river, river tubing down. Is it the French Broad River there? French Broad. There's also yeah. the Nantahala and lots of other yeah. rivers. Yeah. We did that. We went to the Arts District. Um, at the end of this sort of whirlwind week of, of doing all of these kind of hippie-ish countercultural things, found ourselves in the middle of a street festival, which we hadn't know was, known was happening. Oh, was it? Which one um, was it? I, I can't recall. It would have been late September, I guess. Okay. There are, there are so many street festivals <laughs> in Asheville all through the summer, so there's no telling yeah. which one it was. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was, it was a big one, and the vibe just really got to me somehow, and I remember turning to my wife and saying, you know what? I don't believe in gods or ghosts or magic, but I take them really seriously. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm I'm the exact same way. And, you know, I so Douglas Harding, who wrote The Headless Way, and I did an mm. interview with his student who's who's kind of carried on the teaching of The Headless Way. Oh, what's it? Richard Lang. I, I talked to Richard Lang about The Headless Way several episodes ago. And the headless way is kind of this very weird method of meditation in which you search for your own head. And in searching for your own head, you discover that there is no center to the experience of consciousness. And you have that this, this experience of selflessness, of, of emptiness. And it's kind of a, a Western approach to non-dual meditation. And But one thing that Douglas Harding wrote was... The voice of the devil asks, so what? And so one of the things that people might, that, that I think a lot of people have with meditation is they, they do get glimpses. They do get glimpses of these really interesting states of mind. They, get, they do get these really interesting glimpses of, of different, types of consciousness and and different different experiences of consciousness but i think that as douglas harding said a lot of people will say so what <laughs> and i and i think that there's that there's also that there's a similar situation here with what you're p- describing with poetic faith or you know non-theistic ritual non-theistic religion so on and so forth stuff that i live and breathe and absolutely love but it is but i think it's really easy for someone to to look at it and be like eh <laughs> so what yes i had an interesting experience so what and i guess that the thing that i want to say there is there's no harm in giving it a try if you're if there there's nothing wrong with exploring it yeah i agree there's a there's a generational thing as well i think the um only sky people uh, talk about I guess it's Generation Z now, the um, yeah. the youngest. The Zoomers. Yeah, who are apatheist to a degree that's never before been recorded. Apath- say that Say that one more time. Apatheist. Apatheistic, as in they don't care. As in they don't um, give a fuck. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that makes sense. That's the thing. And maybe some of them will develop an interest as they grow older. I don't know. But, sure. Um, but yeah, no, this is this is kind of rarefied stuff. It's, it's bleeding edge. It is. It stuff. is. And I it's, think it's, it's very fringe. It's never going to take over the world. It probably shouldn't have have that ambition. I think in order to take over the world, it would have to embrace so much of of, um, of the mainstream that it would lose its own essence. Hmm. But what I'm interested in doing is, is, as I kind of travel around physically sometimes and through study other times, is spotting all these different manifestations and figuring out what it is that connects them all. I'm particularly interested in connecting them all literally, um, getting them to communicate with each other. Mm. Because I think this is, as you, as you say, it's not, a, it's not a concept. It's not a, certainly not a practice that's ever going to appeal to a large majority. But I think that there's potentially enough of a minority as to form effectively its own subculture, if not counterculture. Absolutely. And that that would be of significant benefit. It's already proving to be of significant benefit to you know to a decent number of people. Most of them are very smart. Most of them are pretty geeky, <laughs> but they're they're getting stuff out of it. And I think that 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 has a lot of potential. Yeah, I agree. And also, you know, I I think of people like myself, where 
I don't think I would ever have been able to leave Christianity, theistic Christianity, if it weren't for the discovery of non-theistic religion. Hmm. And so I, I, I want to see, on, you know, on the edges of culture, more religious groups like the Satanic Temple that can meet a greater variety of needs. Be- yes. You know, so so the Satanic Temple, you know, Satanism, it is niche of it is it is a niche of a niche. It it is very spooky. It scares away a lot of people. It's very intimidating and it's very stigmatized. And so it it is definitely not for everyone. But what I do want to see is more non-theistic options for people. So because I think just as a harm reduction reality you know as as a as as a method of harm reduction to society not that i'm oh i want to be careful how i say this because i don't want to you know diss my my beloved religious friends but i want to see more religious options for people like me who who desire religion but cannot be reconciled to the supernatural components because until that happens, they're going, there's going to be a subset of people who are just anguished or who, who just don't have a home or won't feel like they can let go of something that maybe they should let go of until there's another option. Yeah. There's a wonderful scene in a, well, it's a flawed but fascinating science fiction, sort of sci-fi fantasy movie called Franklin. F A F R A N K L Y N, and it's 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 very difficult to describe. But there's a a scene that is set in a, a sort of a futuristic steampunk type city, um, and it's a literal marketplace of religions. Mm. And the protagonist is walking through doing a sort of, if you're familiar with The Watchmen, um, a Rorschach oh, type yeah. monologue. As he's, as he's walking through the city, the city is entirely run by religions. There there are a million different cults. And he walks through the marketplace of religion and he's being, you know, propositioned basically by representatives of all of these bizarre, um, bizarre cults. Hmm. And it's in a sense, it's satire, but in another way, it represents a, a sort of a radical pluralism that, that might be kind of fun. And as I understand it, that was Lucian Greaves and, and Malcolm Jerry's original thought when they were setting up TST effectively as a, as a set of, of media stunts. Mm-hmm. The idea was that they would create this thing conceptually and that it would then inspire a whole bunch of of, of um, fringe fringe non-theistic religions what actually happened of course was everybody <laughs> said the satanic temple i'm gonna throw <laughs> this, is, that this is awesome but you know and in a lot of ways that's my vision too you know that's still my dream is and mm. it's it's also my dream legally like i think that yeah. I was just on the on the show last week with Shalise talking about this. I think that it's going to take other religious groups asserting their rights in a court. And it will it, and so all of the, you know, within reason and to a degree that's safe for them, I I think a lot of the the weird fringe religions need to need to stand up and go to court and start to fight for their rights in a similar way that TST has done. My hope, like my dream is that TST would inspire, you know, the Quakers and the witches and, and the Unitarian Universalists and the Episcopalians and 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 uh, the pagans and on and on and on and on and on to represent their own to to represent their religious values in court on the basis of religious freedom in this country that's what i want and so in this similarly to how like lucian and malcolm's original vision was you know we're going to do this stunt and we we want it to inspire you know more satanic and non-theistic belief or not belief but but groups and religion that's my dream legally as well mm. Should we bring up the the Church of Prismatic Light as a group that might be doing that? I think we kind of have to now. Yes, so I think so too. Just from my point of view, 
you've been breaking up a bit. I've been able to follow the gist of what you're saying, okay. but um, I think we're on the same page. Yes, yes, I um, think so yeah, too. The, um, the Church of Prismatic Light, um, which I'm only just barely qualified to, to discuss at all, but I did an interview with the, the two um, high priestesses a couple of weeks ago. The Church of Prismatic Light, which is the first non-theistic religion that I'm aware of, and I, I pay a bit of attention to these sorts of things, which has overtly been inspired by TST. And um, it's very new. It's only a couple of months old. And um, briefly what happened was one of the, the founding, they, they refer to themselves as priestesses. Um, her, one of her children is, is tra a trans boy. Heard about what was going on in various conservative states regarding basically repressing and suppressing trans kids' rights. And he went to his mother and said, if that happens in our state, I'm going to take my own life. Mm. And his mother initially said, well, you know, we'll escape, we'll flee the state if that happens. But then it occurred to her that possibly they could start their own religion and, and actually fight it. And that's wow. what she did. I think the, the next day she proposed the, um, the Church of Prismatic Light. She happened to have a pretty substantial TikTok following, I believe. Um, she proposed this to him and was expecting to be sort of laughed, laughed out of the room and shouted down, but she got a lot of support. Mm. And it snowballed massively over just the course of a couple of weeks. I think they, when I spoke to them, they had something like 170,000 followers. Wow. And so they've been very busy um, writing their own tenets and creating initiation or, or baptism rituals and, and so on. And they have, essentially, they will be doing the same when they're, when they've had time to organize, they'll be doing or aiming to do the same sort of thing for particularly the young trans community as the Satanic Temple has been doing in terms of um, mounting wow. um, legal challenges on behalf of, of uh, their deeply held mm. tenets, their deeply held beliefs. That's amazing. And that is exactly the type of thing that I want to see happen. That's it, it, It's that kind of action of people you know, taking their own, you, you know, taking their own religious stance and fighting for it within the courts. That's what I love to see. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. And um, I mean, I I live for this kind of stuff. And so I'm really grateful to you for coming on the show. And also, if I if I may ask in the last, you know, couple of minutes here, what did you do on the Lord of the Rings set? <laughs> sure. If you yeah. don't mind saying. No, no, it's fine. Actually, I haven't done this for a while. Uh, my credit was the Cultural Fighting Styles Designer, which means okay. that my job for two years was to create a series of effectively fantasy martial arts for each of the, the various human and non-human cultures that were featured in the Lord of the Rings movies uh, to invent them. Um, as, as close as I could to match the aesthetic and the, the ethos of the characters, as both as Tolkien had written them and also as they were being devised by various other production departments. Um, and then to train various members of the stunt team and actors as they, as they came on board um, in, in how to perform those. That's um, incredible. That's yeah, like, it was a weird job. That's the most badass job ever. You came well, up with. It was a strange thing to do for a few years. <laughs> I think it's way. I I, th I think I might think it's way more badass than you do. But you basically came up with like martial arts for like dwarves and elves and humans in Lord of the Rings. Not for dwarves, as it happens, because um, my my role was to come up for the with the styles for the characters that would be seen in in mass battle. And I don't think we ever saw dwarves fighting in on mass. Okay. Um, at least not in the original trilogy. But um, yeah, for the elves, for the Gondorians, Rohan, for the mm -hmm. the orcs, the Urukai, the you know, the, I think there were seven major cultures that that I worked on. Wow. Um, and then a sort of a variety of, of little, as it were, subcultures. Wow, you're bringing out the the mega fantasy nerd in me. So we should wrap this up now before it. Before <laughs> <laughs> That's probably safest. Bef yeah. Before it gets out of hand. All right. Um, well, this has been great. I'm so thankful to you for coming on. And for people who are interested in your work, where can they find you online? I don't do very much in the way of social media, I'm afraid. Um, I've written the one article for Only Sky, um, which I think you'll include in the show notes. Absolutely. Which is, we didn't even talk about Oscar Wilde. Oh, that's um, true. The, we'll have to do that next. You'll have to come on again and we can talk about Oscar right, Wilde. We'll talk about Oscar Wilde. 
Um, so that's up, and I'll, I'll presumably write a few more articles for them. I'm also thinking about offering them some podcast episodes. Um, but otherwise, my only real presence online is at a site called altdeath.com, A-L-T-D-E-A-T-H, um, which contains some of my own writing, some of my own practices in, in this regard, but also quite a lot of, of kind of related material. It's a, sort of my repository for um, when I find things like um, the, the sorts of things we've been talking about this evening in history, in subculture, in various other Cult, the, the cultural milieu, when I find this stuff, I'll tend to write it up one way or the other and put it on that site. And this is specifically to, to my own interest in philosophy, which is um, this idea of memento mori ergo carpe diem, remember death and therefore seize the day. Mm. So that's, that's kind of become my theme over the past 30 years. Amazing. I love that. Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, that is it for this show. The music is by Eleven D Seven. The theme song is called Wild. You can find it on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. And this show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long. As always, hail Satan. And thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>